You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. So, Father, thank you for just the sweet, sweet time we just experienced of, of being reminded of what you've accomplished in Jesus and what you're continuing to do through him in our lives and in the world. Thank you that he has risen from the dead and we are one with him. Those, the, the, the truth of our union with Christ, it's, it's inconceivable. It's, how can we take that in? That we are one with the Savior of the world. But it's true. It's true because, because he died in our place. He bore our sins. and has risen from the dead and is even now interceding for us. Thank you that these just aren't truths to recite. They're truths that transform our very lives. I pray as I I share from your word this morning that you would do the same thing, that you would use these words. As I prayed before the meeting, I pray these words would would not fall on on, uh, rocky hearts, uh, on the path or on, on... soil with weeds. I, I pray that our hearts would be good soil and that it would bear fruit a hundredfold for your glory. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This conference we've been learning about the importance of God's word in worshiping God. And I've just loved it. I wish I could have been here for the whole thing. It's, it's very exciting for me to uh, be with a lot of people who are younger than I am, not all of you, most of you, um, and to see your passion about this topic. You know, inside I feel like I'm 28, but I'm 57, so it's, it, you know, sometimes I'm more aware of that than others, but I feel like I'm 28. It doesn't matter. What is most concerning to me is that those who are 28 are getting it, are getting what they need to get, and so it's, it's, a real joy to, to see the passion, your passion, your desire, the fact that you're even here and, and want to be taught and want to learn and want to grow, that, that is, that's a gift from God. But here's the burning question. What will, what will keep what we learn here from being lost by the next generation? What will ensure that what we learn here doesn't die in a month or a year or five years? What do we need to keep in mind as we transfer biblical values of corporate worship to the next generation? What, what guides us? What you know, things we should do, things we shouldn't do? As you might imagine, I've thought a lot about this topic. Got two sons. Uh, one of them's here. Jordan, where are you? Are you here? Yeah, there's my son. And that was really, I'm sure everybody saw that. Just raise your hand right there. There he is. Yeah, my son, my oldest son, who um, just him being here has really made this conference different. I'm usually at conferences just by myself. I'm not very exciting. Um, but, but having Jordan here and Duke is also from his church in uh, Arlington, Virginia. And uh, just so, so grateful. So anyway, I think about this, passing on what we have to the next generation. In many ways, what we're called to do is like a relay race. And a while back, I, I came across this article. Actually, when I first gave this message, I, I did some research. I came across this article, uh, which, which gave some principles for, for how to run a baton relay race. And I thought some of them really shed light on what we're called to do in transferring biblical values of worship to the next generation. So, so listen to some of these. This is Coach Nigel Hetherington, the Scottish National Sprints and Hurdles coach, that's my reference, says, the race is about the baton, not the runners. If you run a relay race without a baton, no matter how fast you go, if you cross the finish line like 10 seconds ahead of every other team, 
but you don't have the baton, you've lost. So that's one principle. Here's another one. The relay brings out the best in every runner. A properly trained 400-meter relay team will post a time that is actually faster than the other four runners, than the four runners combined 100-meter times. So if you take the best times of the individual runners and add them up, when they run the relay, they will run faster than that. We do better if we're conscious that we're part of a team with people coming before us and people coming after us. Here's another principle. Practice until the handover becomes instinctual. Notice these guys aren't running the races trying to figure out at the moment like which hand the guy's gonna to use to grab the baton. Left, right, is he, is he left hand? I can't remember. They've practiced it over and over and over. They have to learn to trust one another. And rather than looking back, the outgoing runner is trained to respond to a hand command. Both runners are looking ahead, but it's the responsibility of the previous runner to make sure that that baton gets into the hand of the next runner. So the one who's first has to make sure that baton gets passed clearly. There's another one. The baton exchange should occur at very close to maximum speed. In other words, the incoming athlete shouldn't be overstretched or he'll be off balance when the baton is actually passed. The outgoing runner must focus on reaching full speed and only put his hand back when the hand command is given. So it's not like the first runner gets to the place where it's passed off and they have a little conversation. They're both running full speed. Why? Because it's so important to get that baton moved on. So there are a lot of parallels to those principles and are asking the question, how should we think about passing on the biblical values of corporate worship? And I, I trust they'll become evident as we look at the passage we're going to look at right now, which is Psalm 78. So if you have your Bible or if you have your Bible app and you would open to Psalm 78, I'm, you know, and I'm tempted to read the whole psalm. Okay, that's all I needed. I'm just going to focus on verses 1 to 8, but partly inspired by Matt's reading, I, I, I want us to hear this. It's a historical psalm. It's much like uh, Psalms 105 and 106, other psalms in, in Scripture. It tells a story. It tells a story for a purpose. A mascal of Asaph. Now, just so you know, this is the most important thing you'll hear me say this morning. I mean, I, I've tried to say some things that are short and, like, tweetable and memorable and, you know. But really, this is the most important thing you'll hear. So let's give our hearts and ears to this. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. 
and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with a bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. Now he's getting into the history lesson. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. And you're thinking, how could they forget that? In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. And this is their response. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Just hear the sarcasm, the unbelief. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat, and he gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power, he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them. Come on! <laughs> he rained meat on them like dust. Winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. And they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him, the ones who were left. <laughs> when he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high their Redeemer. Yes, yes, this is a good place to be. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. God doesn't need our flattery. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. 
when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent them among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. Wow. You don't want to be on the other side of that. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yes, yes. Peace, shalom, milk and honey. Yet, <laughs> oh, you just go, oh no. Yet, they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places where they would worship idols. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity. The ark was captured by the Philistines. His glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from a sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. <laughs> I love this. Mount Zion, which he loved. He built a sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This psalm is, is it begins with a maskal of Asaph. And he's, he's telling us at the beginning, I'm writing this for a purpose. I'm writing this for a reason. It's so that future generations, including ours, would learn this psalm and while reciting it, take these lessons to heart. That, that what is being said here would make an impression on us so that we would not follow their example. But we would see how great and glorious and holy and compassionate and powerful God is. So in the first verse, he invites us to listen carefully, to listen wisely. And in verse 2, he says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Now, he's not talking about things that we can't understand or hidden things. These are things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. 
things that have been passed on from generation to generation to generation and for which we are now responsible. We can't just read this and go, well, that's a nice story. That's really fascinating to hear how, you know, God met him and then they rebelled and then he forgave him and did good stuff and then they rebelled again and he was angry, God was angry. and then he, that's, that's really cool. This would make a great movie. That's not why this is here. It's so that we might benefit from what has gone before and so that we might not follow the example of those who rebelled against God. So, so what do we need to keep in mind as we seek to pass on biblical values of worship to the next generation? I'm going to talk about four things. We're just going to focus on verses 1 through 8. The command, the content, the purpose, and the warning. First, the command. The command is verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation. This is the command. Tell the coming generations. Tell them. Make sure they don't miss it. God's plan is that we pass on our knowledge of him and his ways to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. Look at verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob, and he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, okay, our fathers, to teach to their children, us, that the next generation might know them, our children, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, our grandchildren. So you've got fathers, us, children, grandchildren. So that's four generations. Now, when we read that, you wonder if he's referring to Deuteronomy 6.6, where, where God says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. In other words, make sure that the baton is actually passed. Don't be content, content with external conformity. Make sure the baton is actually passed. Now, someone who understood this seem to understand the, the, the necessity, the command to tell the coming generations was Asaph. Asaph has a fascinating history in the Old Testament. This is one of 12 psalms ascribed to Asaph. Now, whether he actually wrote it or not, or wrote all of them, we're, we're not sure. But one thing we are sure of is that he had an influence that lasted centuries. Asaph was a Levite appointed to minister at the tabernacle when, when David first set it up. He had recaptured the Ark of the Covenant, returned it to Jerusalem, and Asaph was appointed, along with the other Levites, to raise sounds of joy on the cymbals. So that's what he was told to do. You, Asaph, Heman, Jejuthun, you guys, you're gonna do the cymbal thing. So that's what he was doing. So you think, okay, now this is, being, this is an encouragement to you drummers. So Asaph could have said, okay, great, yeah. But it, it seems like uh, Asaph did what he did really well. Because a chapter later, 1 Chronicles 16.5, he was elevated from a cymbal player to a chief musician. He was commissioned by David to be among those who m ministered and worshipped regularly at the tent of meeting to invoke and to thank and to praise the Lord. So he becomes a chief musician. And as David was assembling the musicians for worship in the tent of meeting, among those he chose were the sons of Asaph. Now that could refer to actual sons, to blood relatives, or it could refer to those he was mentoring. And these sons were set apart by David to serve the Lord by prophesying with lyres and harps and cymbals. And we read that in 1 Chronicles 25, verses 1 and 2. Well, they served so faithfully under David that when Solomon was dedicating the temple, they were included in that. It says in 2 Chronicles 5, it was there that the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments and praise to the Lord, and they sang, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And that was Asaph and his sons doing that. Side by side, Asaph faithfully taught, instructed, and ministered with his sons and others who in turn did the same to their sons, who in turn taught their sons on down the line for generations. So about a hundred years later, 
we dip into the story again, as King Jehoshaphat, king of Israel, Judah, is praying for protection against the invading armies, he receives a prophetic word given by Jehaziel, who is one of the sons of Asaph. Second Chronicles 20. 140 years later, during the reign of Hezekiah, the sons of Asaph were among the Levites who cleansed and consecrated the temple so that the worship of God could be restored. Second Chronicles 29. Fast forward another 80 years, all right, so we're 320 years after Jehoshaphat, after Solomon. After the apostasy and repentance of Manasseh, the book of the law was found during Josiah's reign. Remember that? He discovers the book of the law. He tears his clothes when it's read. So he commanded that they celebrate Passover again, and as they offer burnt offerings and sacrifices, the singers turn out to be the descendants of Asaph. 2 Chronicles 35, 15. Another 70 years later. This is after the captivity, nearly 400 years after Solomon's dedication of the temple. 400 years. It's like back in the 1700s and to now. Ezra records that numbered among the exiles returning to Jerusalem were 148 singers, the sons of Asaph. And when the foundation of the temple was laid once again, Nehemiah 7 and 11 tells us it was the sons of Asaph who led the worship. That's quite a legacy. It'd be amazing to, to look, look down from heaven. I don't, whatever we're going to be before the Lord comes back, we're dead in that intermediate state. To look and see a legacy 400 years after you were here. That's what happened. Asaph and his descendants were intentional and purposeful in passing on the practice and understanding of musical worship to future generations. So they could sing and believe that God was good and his steadfast love endures forever because he enabled them to take seriously the command to tell the coming generation. So the question is, how seriously do we take the command to tell the coming generations? That's the question. How seriously do we take the command to tell the coming generations what we know of God and worshiping God? How many of our thoughts about worship revolve around what we like and what we prefer and what interests us and what we find appealing? And how often is that attitude passed on to our children? How often do these songs we sing come from playlists on our iPods? without concern for who has gone before and who has come after, or who's going to come after. I suspect this is one of the reasons that, that churches develop different meetings for different musical tastes. I'm not sure how prevalent that is right now, or maybe some of you are in a church that does that. I mentioned yesterday, while in the short run it might bring more people to the church, in the long run it, it undermines the unity that has been made possible by the gospel. So how, how can we pass on biblical values of worship to coming generations when we can't even sing in the same room with them? It's hard to do. When we, when we can't sing, when we can't find songs that we can sing together. When, when we choose to unite around musical styles rather than the gospel and the word of God. We have to see beyond our generation, both before and after, if we're to clearly understand what we must do now. Otherwise, we're guilty of, of what writer, one writer has called a, a cultural narcissism. You know, when you're a narcissist, you just, just think you're wonderful and amazing, and just you look in the mirror and go, wow, that, that's what a narcissist is. We can be cultural narcissists. We can think that our culture is the apex, the epitome of all that God wants to do in the church throughout history. Can I be very blunt? That is arrogant. That is short-sighted. 
Can I be humble? That's where I lived for years. In the 70s and 80s, thinking that the church just was not getting it right. And praise God, he was raising up people like me to set things right. <laughs> and, it's, and it's worse when you, when you have a lot of other people who think the same thing around you. Now, God does bring revival. He does work in generations. We just got to make sure that the things we're emphasizing and chasing after and following are the things that are the most important things, are the things that God cares about, are the things that need to be passed on from one generation to the next. The church, in case you haven't noticed, is multi-generational. Now, I thank God when they're, you know, when God's saving people. Anytime God is saving people, it's, you know, the angels rejoice. We should be amazed. It's incredible. But that's different from having an unwritten or an unspoken rule in your mind that anybody who's up here in the band has to be between 18 and 35. It's different. Now, that may be the only people who are gifted in your church, and that's fine. But when we're thinking to ourselves, you know, we, we want to put off a kind of a youthful vibe. We want to be like a kind of a hip church. We want to, you know, well, that's wrong. Because you will lose the next generation. And one of the things I am so grateful to God for, so grateful, is that I get, I have two sons, four daughters, but I have two sons that, that I love to minister alongside with. It just, it's a joy. My other son, Devin, he, he leads uh, corporate worship often, and uh, Jordan was his drummer for a while until Jordan became a pastor in church, and uh, that's, that's joy, that's pure joy, because I want to do this. I want to tell the coming generations. So God wants us to have an eye not only on our peers, not only on our children and their friends, but on our grandchildren, even our great-grandchildren. We have a message to pass on to them. So we want to tell the coming generations. All right, so what do we tell them? That's the command. Tell the coming generations. What do we tell them? What is the message? Here's the content. Point two, the content. First, first point was the command. So I'd like to be very clear and simple because that's what I think. Command, now, content. What's the content? Well, we read the content about the content in verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. That's what we're telling them. The deeds of the Lord, His might, and the wonders that He has done. We saw as we read this psalm that it's a really disheartening story in many places. I mean, it's good to read it out loud like that and just realize, let it sink in that, wow, they just continued to turn away from God after all that, after that, and again? Yes, yes, it's, it's disheartening. Israel's unfaithfulness is so clear. But you know what else is clear? God's mercy and God's compassion and God's faithfulness. And this psalm was written so in hopes that future generations might learn and remember the deeds of God. Again and again, Israel forgets God, they disobey God, they choose not to believe God, they test God, they flatter God. And again and again, God disciplines them, He shows them His wonders, He forgives them. God's mercy triumphs over their rebellion and sin. And that's the story that we're to pass on. God's mercy and faithfulness triumph over our rebellion and sin. We call it the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the clearest, most powerful display of the deeds and might and wonders of the Lord. Now, obviously, there are other parts to the deeds and might and wonders of the Lord. He created all things. He sustains all things. When, you, when, when, when we hear about Sandy you know, destroying, ravaging parts of the country, that's just the smallest whisper of the power of God. He's mighty. But you know where I showed his greatest power? 
was when he placed the sins, our sins, on Jesus Christ. And he paid for them. This, is, this displays the deeds and the might and the wonders of God. That the Lord of glory would leave his throne to be born as a baby to a young girl. That he would spend 33 approximately years walking this earth in our skin and bones, knowing that he was headed towards Jerusalem where he would die, bearing the sins of all those who would ever trust in him. He received the punishment we deserved. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to his Father's right hand where he now reigns He's until everything is put under his feet. He's interceding for us. And because of him, we've been forgiven. We've been reconciled to God. We've been grafted into the family of God. It's an amazing story. And we can be tempted to assume that the next generation already knows about the deeds and might and wonder of the Lord. I mean, some of us grew up in churches where we heard about it every week, every week. I know, I know the deeds. Don't need to say it again. I got that. For John Piper say, you know, God doesn't like to be assumed. God doesn't want the gospel to be assumed. Because that's not farther from the truth, that the next generation already has it. Some of us don't have it. Right? We, we sing about what Jesus has done, but our lives are, are filled with with fear and sin and, and anxiety and anger and lust. and It's like we might as well not know the Lord because it's having no perceivable difference, making no perceivable difference in our lives. So we've got to know the deeds and might and wonders of the Lord. But then we've got to pass it on. We have to be intentional. We have to be consistent. We have to be passionate in communicating the wonders of the gospel to the next generation. From a church history standpoint, a church or a movement rarely maintains the gospel from one generation to the next. And remember the baton illustration where, where the, the, the relay is, the, the handoff is passed so much that it becomes, so often that it becomes instinctual. They practice it so much that it becomes instinctual. That's what it needs to be. We talk about it so much, we apply it so much that it becomes instinctual. Because in my own experience, I found that I can know the gospel. I know the gospel. I've been a Christian since I was 18 years old. That's almost 40 years ago. I know the gospel. But it was only to like 10, 15 years ago I realized, you know, I don't think I know how the gospel like relates to my life. I know Jesus is the answer, but I'm not sure how that connects. So, so praise God, he's, he's brought a lot of teachers into the body of Christ who are helping us apply that. C.J. Mahaney, one of, the, one of my dear friends and uh, uh, one uh, guy who's influenced me significantly, probably more than anybody but my wife, in this area, um, wrote a book called The Cross-Centered Life, a little orange book, you know, where he just talked about how, how the cross affects us. Jerry Bridges, The Gospel-Centered Life. Uh, it's a little book called The Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. Um, just a lot of books have been written. Jared Wilson, Gospel Wakefulness. If you haven't read that, that's a great book. Um, we need to know how to apply it to our lives and then pass it on. D.A. Carson wrote, even after times of spectacular revival, reformation, or covenantal renewal, the people of God are never more than a generation or two from infidelity, unbelief, massive idolatry, disobedience, and wrath. Even after times of spectacular revival. So you may think that what's going on in your church right now is like amazing, incredible. But if you're not intentional about passing it on, it may die in a few months, a few years. We must never assume that the next generation fully grasps how great God is. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. It's unsearchable. That means we're not going to run out of ways to express it and explore it in our lifetime. Now, what we can be tempted to do is pass on our deeds and the wonders we have done to the next generation. That's what we can be tempted to do. And this is where we need to be discerning and make distinctions. I remember uh, when my kids were growing up, it used to be in a band years ago. It was a contemporary Christian band at one time. 
is, is called Glad, which even itself is not a very contemporary name now. <laughs> but in the late 70s, it was, it was hip. It was cutting edge. Um, so I remember as my kids were growing up, well, I left the band in 84, but continued to work with them for like 25 years after that. Um, I remember my kids wanting to be impressed that I was in Glad. You know, this, I mean, we traveled the country. We made dozens of albums. We, you know, um, and I just remember wanting, wanting to like the music. So we used to play it around the house, you know, play glad music around the house. And um, yeah, I think when Jordan was like 10 or 11, he said, can we listen to something else? <laughs> and it wasn't just glad, but, you know, it was that, the, the things we had, were listening to. And I just thought, oh, you're not appreciating what I've done. <laughs> And, and God taught me through that, you know, it's, it's not what you've done, it's what I've done that I want you to pass on. So whether or not they like your music, I want them to, to love me, the Savior. Now, you don't have to be in a Christian rock band to have that kind of experience. It, it may be that you simply want your part to be noticed, you want your part to be talked about, alluded to. You want to be commended, praised, honored, esteemed for your playing, your hard work, your songs, your practices, your servanthood, anything. We can want the next generation to get that. Here's the, here's the, here's the deal. We can't exalt the deeds of the Lord and our own deeds at the same time in our hearts. We can't exalt the deeds of the Lord and our own deeds at the same time. God wants us to make a choice. Choose you this day whom you shall serve. Do you want to serve my glory or do you want to serve your, your glory? I mean, as, I, as I get older, it's becoming that evident, very evident to me that any fruit from my life is the grace of God. It's a result of his deeds. It's a result of his might. It's a result of his wonders. As my body starts to fail, you know, the outer man is wasting away. Oh, I can feel that. I feel that. A few years ago, my family prevailed upon me after countless conversations where, like, I'd just be asking, what, 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 what? And then to repeat it, they'd yell at me, I said, pass the butter, don't get angry at me. After <laughs> countless conversations like that, I finally got hearing aids. And you're like, oh, he's older than I thought. <laughs> Listen, when you play in a rock band, you know, for years, those kind of things happen. I have 12 grandkids. My wife and I have 12 grandchildren, and we hope to have many more. But as long as I have life, as long as I have breath, as long as there's life in my veins, I want to be like the psalmist in Psalm 71. This is verses 15 through 19. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness. Yours alone. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, oh God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, oh God, who is like you. Who's like you? God wants that to be our heart. Don't let me die until I've faithfully proclaimed your might and your glory and your wonders to the next generation. That's our task, and that's the content of what we're communicating. All right, so we've got the command, we've got the content, now we want to look at the purpose. What's the purpose of passing these things on? We read that in verse 7. Let's start back at verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should, one, set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, and two, keep his commandments. So, what's the goal of our passing this content on, the gospel on? We want our children and their children to set their hope in God and obey God. That's the goal of our seeking to pass on what we know to be true to the next generation. That they hope in God and that they obey God. 
we're not, we're not wanting people just to copy us externally. We're not just wanting people to uh, be good citizens in future generations. Yeah, they, yeah, that's they, a great worshiper that she does great, and yeah. We want them to actually put their hope in God. We don't want them to put their hope in us. We don't. You don't. I, I don't want the influence of my life to be, oh, you know, Bob, he's, yeah, he's, he's the reliable one. No, I'm not. But I can point you to the one who is. Because I know him and he's reliable. We don't want future generations to look back at us and say, we want to do everything exactly like they did. Well, first they won't. But we've made a lot of mistakes. It doesn't mean that future generations can't learn from us, but we don't want to pass on everything we've done. We want to pass on what God has done. We don't want them to set their hope in our musical preferences, in our way of doing things, in our structures, our band arrangements, our communication methods, our lighting techniques. We want them to set their hope in God. We want them to hope in Jesus Christ because he's faithful forever. It's important that we don't allow people to set their hope in us. We will fail them. We will disappoint them. We will probably confuse them. We will let them down. We don't want future generations to hope in our technology. Boy, what a different world it is in 2012 than it was in 1982. What a different world. I was, I was hearing Matt talk about, you know, well, church apps in Seattle, you know, we got a church app for doxology theology. That's incredible that we have all these resources now available to us. But let's make sure that people are more excited about the content that we're passing on than the fact that we can pass it on. In our church services, let's make sure that, that those who are watching us recognize that we're more excited about the gospel than we are that we got a new guitar. I love, one of the other things I love about this morning was just, you know, Piano and guitar. Because really, probably 90% of all churches in America are like that. That's it. That's what we got. You know, we got a lady who plays the accordion, but we're not going to use her. <laughs> you know, we, it, that, that, what that does, it communicates what's most important. So I would encourage you in your churches to mix it up. Don't let the next generation think that worship is a sound. If it's a sound, it's a sound of God's people with hearts of faith and trust in Jesus proclaiming the great deeds of the Lord. Okay, we can say that, that's a sound. But it's not a musical sound. There's not like one one kind of music that God says, yes, that's the best. I remember like in the 80s listening to a light jazz record. I was really into light jazz in the 80s. And, uh, <laughs> and hearing it and thinking, hey, that sounds like a worship song. It just felt like the Lord said, what? What? Like that's the only kind of music I like? Light jazz? And you know what? He might not like your music. What he likes is when we sing about the glories of Jesus. And we sing about his works and his worthiness and his word. It's important that future generations don't think a new instrument or a new technology or a new video software or piece of gear or website or social networking technology is going to be a replacement for setting our hope in God. Our hope has to be in God. We don't want future generations to put their hope in good books or their efforts in reading them. Good books are a gift from God, but they're not God. So, you know, some of us are like, man, if, as long as I'm reading the, the latest, greatest, you know, young, restless, and reformed book or whatever, you know, group you're with, then I'm good. I'm good to go. 
Have you read that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I read it, yeah. yeah. Uh, done, I read it twice, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, that's teaching people to set their hope in the reading of books, not, not in Jesus Christ. There are 10,000 idols that future generations can put their hope in besides God, and every one of them will fail. Every one of them will prove empty and vain. Only God is worthy of our hope. So we want to teach future generations to set their hope in God. And you know what that's going to mean? I'm sorry to say this. It means that we are going to fail. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to do stupid things. So that the next generation can see, oh, I'm not putting my hope in him. I'm not putting my hope in her. I'm, oh, but, but there's a God they're trusting in. And he seems to lift them up every time they stumble. That's good news. The Christian life is just, I wish it was, different from this. The Christian life is just not one, you know, ascending line of just success and fruitfulness and glory until we finally see Jesus. I mean, do you realize there's just hardly anyone in the Bible that that was the case for? I mean, only Jesus, really. And and his life was not exactly, um, you know, just all, everybody... We fail. Why? So that people can see we worship a great Savior. You're going to fail. If you spend all your energies trying not to fail, well, you'll be tightly wound, you'll be a drag to be around, and you won't show the coming generations that they should set their hope in God. Okay, we also want to, the next generation to obey God. To obey God. Pretty simple. This is not rocket science. Disobedience was the downfall of Israel, and it can potentially be our downfall as well. Obedience is not an optional part of the Christian life. Remember one time I was at a meeting where, where a guy had two separate invitations. If you want to receive Jesus as Savior, and if you want to receive Jesus as Lord. I thought, what? <laughs> it's, I mean, you can't split Jesus up like that. He's the king of kings. If he's your savior, he's your king. He's not offering like a, you know, separate deals. This curtain now, this curtain then. You know, it's all together. He is the Lord. He is the savior. 1 Peter 1, 2 says, we have been saved for obedience to Jesus Christ. So as we seek to train future generations of worship leaders and musicians, we want to impress upon them that we have been bought with a price and we have been called to glorify God not only with our lips and our songs, but through our obedience to his commands. God's commands are not optional. They're not suggestions. We don't vote on them. So... When considering members for your team, if you're in that position, or some other position of responsibility, their character needs to be one of your primary considerations. And I think it probably is, but I just want to say it anyway. Because I've had sad conversations with leaders who are asking about members of their team and whether they should keep them on. And and I said, said, yeah, they'll they'll say, I'm I'm wondering about this person. You know, my drummer came to me and said the other night, you know, and like he's been living with his girlfriend for a year and a half, and... You know, I'm just wondering, like, I don't want to be hard. I don't want to be legalistic. And, you know, I don't, I'm thinking, you are kidding me. Are we, we're really having this conversation. Here's someone who is put up in front of the church as a representative of someone who's seeking to, to honor God with their life. And they are, they're in fornication for a year and a half, unrepentant fornication. And, and you're asking me if it's grace to let them stay on the team. And I would say, that's a misunderstanding of what grace is. Grace does bring forgiveness through Jesus Christ. But Titus 2.11 says, the grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's what the grace of God does. So it's not grace to say to someone, you know, obedience, the obedience thing, that's like kind of secondary. It's really, it's like not that important. Most important thing is that you be a good musician and that you be passionate and that you be on time. 
That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> well, you know, we're called to magnify the glory of Jesus Christ. And, and when we walk in disobedience, unrepentant disobedience, the only thing we're going to magnify is God's discipline in our lives, which he'll receive glory from that too. Now, this would be especially true in the area of humility. We save ourselves a massive number of headaches by waiting to bring someone onto a team until we know that they're really pursuing humility. I say pursuing humility, because none of us are really humble. We're all pursuing humility. But if someone like has no clue about that, and they don't want it, and they, they bristle at it, any correction, any thought that they don't have to change anything, you will save yourself so many headaches by waiting to add them. Now, if they're already on your team, then I'd suggest you talk with your team about humility and say, you know what, we, we, we want to be faithful to honor Jesus with the way we're living and work that out after that. We want the next generations to hope in God, to obey God, and finally, a warning. This is the warning. And it's so sad that this has to be included. So they should set their hope in God, verse 7, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So that's the generation that came before, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts weren't steadfast, who weren't faithful to God. And the psalmist is saying, don't be like them. How do you want your generation to be described? Like if you were included in the fathers of the previous generation, how would you want your music ministry, your worship team, your church described? Now without, I don't think any of us would come up with these words. But I think some of us are maybe thinking relevant, hip, missional, creative, impressive, really cool. Here are the two words that I, I'd like to hear describe my ministry, steadfast and faithful. And if, and if the other words are used, great. But that's what I'm most concerned about. Steadfast and faithful. They're not the flashiest words. <laughs> hey, you want to be steadfast? <laughs> oh, yes. Hey, that church down the street, they're really steadfast and faithful. <laughs> You're kidding. Oh, I want to go there. <laughs> no... No, but those are the words that God's chosen to describe those that he's going to work through. Steadfast and faithful. Steadfast and faithful to treasure the gospel. Steadfast and faithful to tremble at God's word. Steadfast and faithful to intentionally pursue those younger than us. Steadfast and faithful to pursue those older than us. For parents, steadfast and faithful with our children. We don't know how this is all going to work out. We, we, we have no idea what kind of fruit God might choose to bear through us. Some of the, some of the most well-known names in, in the church today were unknown 15 years ago. No one ever heard of them. Like when people, <laughs> when people talk about John Piper, sometimes they say, yeah, I knew John Piper like before he was John Piper. You know, for years, he was just steadfast and faithful. And then God said, you know what? I'm going to use you to influence an entire generation. And really, that's what God's using John Piper to do. You think of the volume of books that he's produced, the sermons he's preached, and how many times you run into a Christian who will say at some point in their conversation, yeah, I read this thing about John Piper, and it really affected me. Well, do you think John Piper was, was, you know, started out saying, oh, I just want to become a massively household name. I just want Christians around the world to talk about John Piper, John Piper, John Piper. He is so not that. 
So not that. I run a conference, Worship God Conference, every other year. This year we're doing two, one in Louisville and one in Orange County, California. Next year, rather. And um, I had him in a few years ago. He was gracious enough to come speak. And I remember, I remember talking to him before the meeting and uh, saying, oh, you know, just something like, John, I'm, I'm, the conference is going so well, and now, you know, and we have you here too. And his immediate response was, oh, yeah, I'm here. John Piper's here. Like, now God's here. God's going to show up. And, you know, he just started rebuking me. <laughs> I was trying to encourage him, but that's how John is. <laughs> so anyway, back to the Back to the point. We don't know what kind of fruit God's going to bear through us. That shouldn't be our concern. He calls us to be faithful, making his deeds and his might and his wonders known to everyone around us and everyone who comes after us. Will we be a success in the world's eyes? We don't know, but we're called to be faithful. Here's a quote from Oz Guinness, his book, his excellent, excellent book, Prophetic Untimeliness. If we define all that we, before, all that we are before our great caller, and live our lives before one audience, the audience of one, then we cannot define or decide our own achievements and our own success. It is not for us to say what we have accomplished. It is not for us to pronounce ourselves successful. It is not for us to spell out what our legacy has been. Indeed, it is not even for us to know. Only the caller can say, only the last day will tell. Only the final well done will, sh will show what we have really done. Now, as we consider our track record of faithfulness, most of us, probably all of us, come, on the, come up on the side, come up against some discouragement. Who's really been faithful? Who's really been steadfast? Well, that's why I'm glad we read the whole psalm this morning because at the end of the psalm, we see that someone has been steadfast. After 60 verses detailing Israel's repeated failures, we read these words, starting at verse 70. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. The psalmist recounts God's faithfulness to his people in providing David to shepherd and guide the Israelites with his faithful hand. Of course, we know that David didn't turn out to be so faithful. I mean, for crying out loud. David saw a naked woman on a roof, slept with her, brought her home, husband home, lied to him, made sure he was killed. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call that an example of faithfulness. But you know where David was faithful? He trusted in the mercy and compassion of God to forgive him. So we get Psalm 51. But even more significantly, David was a type. He was a foreshadow. There was someone coming from David's line who was really going to be these things. And that's King Jesus. He's come. He's the one of whom it can be said, he has an upright heart. He will guide us with a skillful hand. He will make sure that the glory and the might and the great deeds and the wonders and works of God will be passed on. How do we know that? Because we read in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Hallelujah. Jesus came to do something, to redeem a people for his Father's glory. He did it. It is finished. We're just working out the details now. But it's been done. The passing of the baton to the next generation is ultimately up to God, who in his faithfulness has provided us the Davidic King, Jesus. 
He will faithfully shepherd and guide us. He will watch over us with skillful hand until all his people have been redeemed and we see him face to face. See, we have our eyes on next Sunday. God has his eyes on the next 100 years. He has his eyes on eternity. We think the race is about us. It's about those who have gone before us and those who will come after us, all proclaiming the greatness of our glorious Messiah and Savior and King, Jesus Christ. And by his powerful spirit working in us, God will make sure that we both receive the baton of the gospel and pass it on for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we so want to be used. We so want to be used for your purposes. We we don't want our lives to be a mere breath with no meaning. We, we want to be used by you to bring glory to you and to faithfully pass on to future generations what we have received. So we ask you to do that in us and through us. We pray that we get it ourselves. We pray that we receive the baton well, that we not simply copy mannerisms and, and practices and technologies, but that we, we press into your word, we press into the gospel, we press into receiving all that you've given us in your spirit so that we might faithfully pass it on to future generations for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.